Please pray with me. Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. If you've ever been camping with friends, and I'm not sure why you would because we have this thing called air conditioning, but if you've ever been uh, camping with friends and you see a bear, the old adage is you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun your slowest friend. <laughs> the adage is a reminder that as humans, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And that's not always a bad thing. For example, I listen to a lot of preaching during the week from podcasts of other churches, Anglican churches, Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, Catholic churches, and it helps hopefully sharpen my own preaching and hopefully you benefit every other week when I preach because I've listened to other preachers and hopefully improve in my craft of preaching. As a classroom teacher, I'm required to go observe a certain number of teachers every year uh, so that I might see how they run their classroom and perhaps incorporate successful elements of their teaching into my own classroom. That's a good thing. It's good for my students. It's good for me as a teacher to develop. But often when we as humans compare ourselves to others, we do it in an unhealthy way that's not always very good. In fact, I think there are kind of two ways that we do this that end up being harmful to ourselves. First, we can compare ourselves to others who are gifted differently than ourselves and then use that to sort of pummel our own selves. So-and-so makes so much more money than I do. So-and-so works out so much more than I do. So-and-so has way more kids than I do and they're always very much, very well behaved, especially compared to my kids or whatever the issue may be. And that's not a good way or a healthy way to live our lives. But the other way that we might compare ourselves to others, and I think maybe the more insidious way, is that we compare ourselves to others in a way that makes us feel good about ourselves at the other person's expense. We give ourselves a superiority complex over other people. I may have my faults, but I'm, at least I'm not as bad as those, insert group here, liberals, conservatives, Baptists, Catholics, LGBT people, rich people, poor people, and the list could go on indefinitely. And when we do that, we fall into a trap of relativity. That is, we think our moral and or spiritual value is derived from the faults and sins in other people. We're more than happy to use comparison to other people to wish for God's, in God's justice to be rained down upon them, whoever they are, but we're not so quick to wish God's judgment on ourselves when we've fallen into sin. And so I think today that our readings speak to this tendency in our own human nature to use others as human shields in our own self-justification. But first, I do have a confession to make regarding the uh, rich young ruler story that we read today. I've always assumed that story was primarily about money. And so I just assumed, you know, it's, it's real hard to be rich, so I'm doing well because I'm not very rich. <laughs> But after sitting with the story for a little, uh, for the past two weeks, it's clear to me now that while money plays an important story, or, or an important role in the story, particularly in the life of the rich young ruler, it's not the primary focus, at least not for Mark. That's not primarily what he's trying to address. And don't get me wrong, the problem with the rich young ruler is that he is a materialist. In our day, however, it might be easy to run with that motif. Given hyper-partisan political rhetoric, it might be easy to, be read in, to read into the story some sort of subversive anti-capitalist message from Jesus, as if his main interest is some economic theory. 
And believe me, if you read enough journal articles or commentaries about Mark, some people have tried to do that. The problem with that way of reading the text, though, is that it becomes very easy to push the message off of us and onto them. It's not about us. It's definitely not about me. If it's about money, it's definitely not about me. But it is about rich people. So let's take a closer look at the story and see what's going on here and how we might discern uh, what it is that Mark is trying to say. Directly before this passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus is, uh, is speaking and the disciples are shooing away children. And this causes Jesus to rebuke them. And he says, let the little children come to me. This is one of the reasons why we want our children in here during Eucharist and why we enjoy the sounds that they make during the service because that's what Jesus says. Let the little children come to me. Far be it from us to be the ones to put an impediment between our children and Jesus. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Immediately following our reading, Immediately following that in, in example begins our reading with the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which Jesus has actually just answered in the previous story. And so Jesus responds with what you might expect from a Jewish rabbi. He tells the man he must observe the Ten Commandments by not murdering, by not committing adultery, by not stealing, by not bearing false witness, by not defrauding other people, by honoring his father and his mother. Now the text gives us precious little biographical information about the rich young ruler. But if he's anything like me, he hasn't followed those commandments to the fullest extent. Sure, he may have not committed murder or he may not have committed adultery, but Jesus has redefined those commands at the, at the Sermon on the Mount, saying it's not just about not killing someone, it's about not thinking hateful thoughts in your heart about them. It's not just about not committing adultery, it's about not thinking about someone other than your spouse sexually with lust. With that in mind, it's hard to imagine anyone who's blameless in the eyes of the law. And in fact, Paul tells us in his magnus opus of Romans and also in the book of Galatians that no one is really innocent in the eyes of the law. Yet the rich young ruler has the audacity to say, Teacher, I have kept all these laws from my youth. And so Jesus tells him there's one thing that he lacks. He must sell all his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor so that he can build up his treasure in heaven. That's not what the young man wanted to hear. And the text tells us he went away grieving for he had many possessions. With that encounter in mind, Jesus tells his disciples that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, which causes the disciples to astonishingly ask the question, well, then who can actually be saved? And Jesus' response, which I think is the key to understanding the message of the whole passage is, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Would you think that a response like that, a real knockdown theological winner, would be a fitting way to end the episode? But unfortunately, Peter has to open his mouth and say, look, we have left everything and followed you. And this outburst causes Jesus to subtly rebuke Peter. The reward for leaving everything behind to follow after Jesus is not found in this life. Following Jesus is not going to earn you the big bucks. It's not even going to earn you laud and honor. However, it is going to get you rewards in life eternal. 
But the most striking observation that Jesus makes, and this touches us just on how radical the gospel is, can be found in the very last verse of the reading, verse 31. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. If this story is about rich versus poor, or about how bad all rich people are, then it really isn't very important. Most people who read it aren't rich. But it is important. We can learn from it. It's very important because the rich young ruler and Peter both demonstrate a similar impulse. And that impulse is endemic to what it means to be human. It's the impulse towards self-justification and misplaced confidence in ourselves. The rich young ruler unreflexively claims to have kept all of the laws of Israel, asserting that he has made it. When his reaction to Jesus' demand that he sell all his possessions and give them to the poor clearly shows that the rich young ruler has not made it in any meaningful sense. And Peter is an opportunist in the situation, taking the failure of the rich young ruler as an opportunity to bolster his own self in the eyes of Jesus. At least that's what he wants to do, but Jesus doesn't let him get away with it. Yet the most fascinating part of the story, and something I've never noticed until the past couple weeks sitting with this passage, and I've heard the story countless times growing up in Sunday school and just reading the Bible frequently, is that after the young ruler embarrassingly brags about his own self-righteousness, the detail that Jesus looks at him and loved him, I, I just, I've never seen that before, and it just really stood out to me this week. Here's this confident, braggadocious, successful, privileged person, and he's coming before Jesus and telling what is either, uh, it, it's either evidence of, of deep-seated narcissism or straight-up lying, and Jesus looks at him and he, he loves him. I just always thought Jesus' command of go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor was Jesus' way of saying, gotcha, but that's not what he's doing. Jesus loves him. Growing up at one of the churches my family attended growing up, it was a dysfunctional church, like most of the churches we attended, we would often sing a worship song that had this line in it that went, come now as you are to worship. And I like that line in context because it emphasizes the openness of the gospel. All of you can come no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the gospel is for you. Yet my one problem with it has always been that it, it comes off a bit casual, come as you are to worship. Yes, come as you are. Jesus bids you come and he welcomes you with wide open arms, but he also doesn't he also bids that you don't stay as you are. Right? He wants you to pick up your cross and follow him. He bids that you come and die, that you become a living sacrifice. So Jesus isn't opposed to the rich young ruler. Quite the opposite. Jesus loves him, no matter what his social status is. It's precisely because Jesus loves him that he tells him to sell his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Jesus wants this man to destroy all of the idols in his life. He demands full and complete obedience. It reminds me of the scene from Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce. A man who had been in hell boards the bus to get to heaven. His great sin was lust, which manifests itself in a lizard sitting on his shoulder telling him lies in his ear. In order for him to remain in the heavenly city, he has to trust God and not the lizard. But the lizard keeps telling him that he's going to die without him, that if the man lets go of lust, that he won't be able to survive. Yet after much persuasion from his heavenly guide, the man does let go of the lizard and the lizard is destroyed, but the man becomes transformed into who God would have him to be. 
Jesus isn't trying to trip up the rich young ruler. He's not trying, he doesn't have ill will towards him. He wants the man to be purged of the things that are poisoning him. And this story is a great reminder that even though it's often hard for us to see it from our perspective, to see it in the midst of the trials and the storms and the tribulations of our lives, that God's fundamental orientation to us comes from a posture of love. Sadly, the rich young ruler can't see this. And so he leaves the scene and he grieves the high cost of discipleship giving Jesus an opportunity to interpret the event for his disciples. This is where that infamous line, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than a rich person into the kingdom of God, comes from. But the follow-up question is interesting from the disciples. Then who can be saved? Well, the disciples weren't rich people, so it raises a question why they're so concerned about this. Why does Jesus' statement throw a wrench into their understanding? And I think this question stems from a prevalent Jewish perspective at the time. Based on certain misreadings of the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs and some of the wisdom literature, some Jews held to something called retribution theology. It's sort of like karma, but with the biblical law. So effectively, if you live according to the law, you'll get material blessings. And if you break the law, you'll get material curses. So you could kind of tell based on how someone's turned out in life, whether they're a good person or a bad person. So you've got lots of money, you must be doing something right. God's blessed you. Of course, books like Job kind of make that position a little bit untenable. So Jesus' response is important because he turns their assumption that obedience automatically leads to physical blessing on its head. He goes from discussing the very specific social location of the rich young ruler to talking about a universal reality for mortals, whether rich or poor, whether um, whether. Baptist or Catholic or Anglican or Presbyterian, no matter who you are, it is impossible to be saved on your own, but it's not impossible for God. Therefore, it is only through God that mortals can be saved. The rich young ruler may have had a specific problem like materialism that was holding him back, but even if that's not your particular struggle, the rich young ruler is you and the rich young ruler is me because He's a symbol that we can't do it on our own. Whatever our sin is, materialism, lust, hate, whatever it is, whatever it is, it warps our desires and it makes us react the same way that the rich young ruler did when we're demanded to follow Christ by picking up our cross. Our tendency is to self-justify, to place undue confidence in ourselves as if God will understand whatever reasons we have for doing what it is that's holding us back from being disciples. And of course, at this point, Peter speaks as he's prone to do at inopportune time, in opportune times. Peter compares himself to the rich young ruler. Look, we've left everything to follow you. He wants immediate gratification. He wants praise and recognition. He wants to be praised at the expense of the rich young ruler. He's outrunning the slowest friend in the camp. But this gives Jesus the opportunity to respond. Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first.
True wisdom is counterintuitive to us because our tendency is to think about the here and now. But Jesus shows us how we should think. Eternity gives significance to the temporal. Something may be costly in the moment, but being a disciple reminds us that we pay it now so that later we can reap the rewards of our actions. But by saying the last will be first and the first will be last, Jesus is taking our natural expectations and turning them on their head. Things don't always work out the way that we thought they would, and praise the Lord that they don't. Our inclination, especially in the modern world, is to base everything off of performance, efficiency, etc. If you work hard, then you'll be successful, and if you don't work hard, you should fail. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But we're reminded this morning that that's not quite always how it is. So above all, we should follow the call of the gospel. N.T. Wright says, the call, come, follow me, echoes throughout history, and everyone is judged by the answer they give. Rather than place our confidence in the here and now, based on what we have or what we've done, our Hebrews reading tells us exactly where we should place our confidence. If you were paying attention last week to our Hebrews uh, reading from chapter 2, it was a comparison of Christ and the angels, explaining why Christ is superior to them. This week, the author of Hebrews is comparing Christ and Moses to each other. The author begins by uh, begins our reading this morning by urging us, his brothers and sisters who are partners in a heavenly calling, to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He said that Jesus was faithful to the Father, the one who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. In this way, Moses and Jesus are very much alike in that they both show us what faithfulness to God's calling looks like. Yet the author makes it clear that Jesus is actually worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus, as God, is the mind behind the house that God has built. So of course he's, worth, he's worthy of more glory than Moses, who was a servant in that house and performed dutifully and, and commendably. But he, Moses isn't the architect of the house. He's not behind all things, so it would be wrong to elevate him like he was. In verse 5, the author tells us that Moses' faithfulness served a purpose to testify to things that would be spoken later. Moses was instrumental in God's plan of salvation history. He was a picture of what would come. And so as important as Moses is, everything, including Moses, finds its end in Christ. Moses may have been a servant, but Christ is the very Son of God, and we, as his followers, are his house, according to verse 6, which I thought was an interesting metaphor that may seem a little bit confusing. Why are we a, a house? It's kind of a weird thing. The form of the Greek word uh, that means house has some other important appearances in the New Testament. Matthew 21, 13, Mark eleven seventeen, and John 2, 16 all feature this word as Je Jesus is clearing out the temple and says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So there's a certain degree of temple language associated with this word. And of course, this meaning of the house being a temple is heightened by the use of Jesus as the great high priest in the book of Hebrews. Israel's temple was a physical, geographical place where God dwelt among his people. Yet in 1 Corinthians 3.9, in the New Covenant, Paul tells us that Christians are God's building, same form of the Greek word used there. God is not bound to a physical space like a temple anymore. 
God is with his people in the church, making us living stones, as 1 Peter says. And because we're part of his magnificent, indivisible structure called the church, which is more beautiful than any physical building that could ever be built, we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. We can hold great hope that the architect of all things, the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, and the one who's greater than the angels and Moses will continue to be faithful to his covenant with us. As a result, we don't need to wring our hands and stay up late at night wondering if we've done enough, if we're good enough. We're free to shed our self-justifications and our misplaced self-confidence. We don't need to approach the altar today emphasizing how good we are, holding up ourselves as if we're rich young rulers. We approach the altar with confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence that even though for mortals it's impossible, for God all things are possible. And so to close, I wanted to share a quote from a Roman Catholic saint named Jose Maria Escriva, whose writing is really beautiful and transcends any sort of denominational differences that we might have. But he says this, you are discouraged, why? Is it your sins and miseries? Is it your defeats at times coming one after the others? A really big fall that you didn't expect? Take refuge in divine sonship. God is your most loving father. In this lies your security, a haven where you can drop anchor no matter what is happening on the surface of the sea of life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.